You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. It's halfway through the week. The week is almost over, and... uh... Friday is getting closer and closer and closer, which means Saturday is getting closer and closer and closer. And um, I don't know about you guys, but as much time as I spend in front of a computer, whether it is doing my real job or you know behind uh, the computer and the microphone doing this podcast, it's always nice to get away from everything and get out and just decompress and disconnect for a little bit and that's what I'm going to be doing this upcoming weekend Um, kind of a real funny story my dad works with a guy who raises fainting goats so if you smack your hands or yell real loud they'll stiffen up and fall over Uh, you can go to YouTube and check it out it's hilarious but we're going to be taking my son and my daughter to this farm and uh, I just I cannot wait to see, to see what happens with with these fainting goats. So, um it could it could get really interesting this this weekend. Um if uh if I remember, I'll be sure to post some videos on the Facebook page, but today we have kind of a first um for this podcast. We're going to be talking with a guy named Nick and Nick is going to talk to us today about quality deer management and uh, QDMA um, and how he got involved, how he brought some of those principles into his property, um, how he has seen direct results from those principles and implementing those principles, not only um, planting food plots on his property, but um, also implementing habitat improvements like, you know, um, some hinge cutting and, uh, you know, making it thick and nasty in there for, for the deer to uh, have you know, all the things that deer need, water, food, and cover. And um, so he's going to go into detail about a farm that he basically started from scratch on and how he has seen um, the results over um, the past years. And uh, he kind of just basically shares the story of what he's done and how he's done it. And uh, 
that's something we don't really talk a lot about on this podcast, but it's part, a lot of people do do it. So I felt, Hey, why not get a, a regular Joe on who has done it and has seen success from it. And, uh, hopefully you guys, uh, hope you guys like it. Now, before we get into today's podcast, let's hear what the owner of Ripcord Arrowrest, Keith Dvorsnak, has to say about their lifetime warranty. Um, here at Ripcord, we have a lifetime warranty on your rest. So you purchase that rest. Um, I don't care if your dog got in there and ate it. We're going to cover it. Um, you run it over with a four-wheeler, we're going to cover it. You get bucked off a horse in the backcountry, something happens, Ben's, you know, we understand. We're all bow hunters here, too. Things happen. Um, we, we stand behind our product 110%. We know that it'll work, and it works great. Something happens to it, though, we're going to stand behind it. And there you go. If you guys want to find out more information about Ripcord Arrowrests, be sure to visit ripcordarrowrest.com or visit your local bow shop or dealer or box store. Uh, I think they're just about everywhere. Um, Check them out. And uh, if you have any questions, go to the website, read up on the products and uh, what they can all offer. And uh, I'm sure you guys will be impressed. Now, let's get into today's BS Session podcast with Nick Lundgren. Nick Lundgren, how we doing? Good, Dan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Um, so today we are, wait a second, before I even get into any of that, you're from New York, right? Correct. Now, did you get hammered with a lot of snow recently? Yeah, uh, we've, I'm actually a, a teacher, so I've had two, the last two days off of school, we've had snow days because uh, we've had basically constant snow since Monday night. It just stopped maybe like 20 minutes ago. We probably got about a foot of snow, but which is not crazy for us. You know, we usually right. get a bunch, but, uh, it's, uh, it was bad enough where they decided to cancel school, I guess. So, right. Yeah. Now, do you get that lake effect snow or is it, Oh yeah. Is this part of that nor'easter that came through? Well, this I think is a nor'easter, um, because to be honest, if we got lake effect, this we would have gotten three or four times the amount that we've gotten if it snowed for that long. Like gotcha. we've had 2014, we had six feet of snow around my house. Like it was insane. So it's wow. uh, this is definitely not lake effect. I don't think this time around. So uh, shed hunting's on the back burner for at least a little while, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Unfortunately, I'm pretty busy right now, anyways, with stuff. So I, I, I'm kind of happy. Uh, it'll be pushing it off until I'm ready, which is nice. another week or two. So. Nice. All right. So you live in uh, southwestern New York. Um, why don't you tell us uh, where you live and what you do for a living? Okay. So I I live in a suburb of Buffalo, uh, West Seneca. So just south of Buffalo. I uh, I grew up um, in Chautauqua County, New York, which is the southwesternmost county, uh, literally right on the Pennsylvania border. My property is literally right on the border. Um, so that's where I grew up. That's where I hunt. That's where I spend you know, all my hunting time. But I work and live uh, in right outside of Buffalo right now. And uh, I'm 32 years old, and I am a high school technology teacher. So 
Right. I basically I teach shop. I teach wood shop right now. That's kind of what my, what I do. There's a wide scope of things that we could teach, but basically right now I'm just teaching wood shop. Gotcha. Now I'm just going to speak from what I know about high school. In high school, I was an asshole. Uh, and I probably <laughs> was not very respectful to my teachers. Are is high school these days? I, I just feel that high school kids these days are even more assholes, bigger assholes than what I used to be. Is that something that you can comment on? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, most days I. Uh... I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like not really uh, happy with, you know, the attitude and stuff. Um, but the thing that I kind of say about being a teacher is like, you know, for like every, you know, I don't know. Unfortunately, I, I'm probably going to get my basis for this, but I would say, unfortunately, like 50, 60% of the kids can be assholes. They probably all won't end up for pretend, you know, they won't. Right end up that way but at least they act like that when they're teenagers which you and i probably were the same so yeah the but the rest of them you know make up for it so you know if i have one really good encounter with a good kid every day that's you know that makes it worth it gotcha. i have had you know a lot of good stuff but it's uh they definitely uh can be a pain in the ass for sure so yeah, I'll, I'll tell <laughs> and you, then try to teach them how to use a, you know, miter saw and table saw along with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I got to tell a shop class uh, story real quick. Um, All right. And I'm going to, I'm going to lead up to this shop class story with a um, kind of a side story where have you ever noticed that in certain rooms, in certain buildings, if you open one door, the pressure in the room kind of shifts and like another door will rattle or yeah or click or something like that all right so now you get kind of get the gist of it here but yeah. when i was in middle school we all the girls were in our in our shop class all the girls were supposed to wear like ponytails well mm -hmm. we were making some kind of shelf or something whatever eighth graders do and the shop it was hot so the shop teacher opened up the window to or the door to the outside to um, cool it off or get some air circulating through. Well, the girl that I was working with at, out of my group of three, her hair kind of blew in in the wind and got caught in a bandsaw that was running, and it oh. it pulled her head down like someone like just pushed her head into the the metal part of it and it ripped her hair out. It didn't like pull her hair into the saw but it ripped her hair out and she's okay but i can sit back and laugh at that now <laughs> so yeah so i'm yeah, sure that's the kind of stuff i like have nightmares about yeah yeah <laughs> right so um i look back on it and i could see like will farrell doing some kind of skit in one of his movies about it <laughs> yeah 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 i uh, i agree that's uh yeah, I am lucky with so far. I've been teaching for seven years. I haven't had a, any any kids get seriously injured. I'm the only one that's gotten seriously injured this year. I had a piece of wood kick back on the table saw and took a chunk of my finger off. But Ugh. I uh, I know what that's all about. Not too bad. Yeah, I'm like uh, nine and seven eighths fingers. <laughs> <instead of laughs> nine. But. That'd be a long URL for a podcast. 
nine and seven eighths <laughs> fingers chronicles podcast. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So today we're going to talk about you, your hunting, and then a little bit about uh, QDMA and uh, you starting with another guy starting a QDMA branch. Now, mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions in regards to this, but leading up to this, before you started this branch, before you started practicing quality deer management in your area, talk to us a little bit about what hunting was like, whether you're, we want to talk about numbers, we want to talk about, um, you know, butt to doe ratio, uh, herd health, or, you know, why a lot of people do what they do, big bucks. So talk to us a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Okay, so I'll just give you like a quick overview of how I got into it and then like, you know, tell you that, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So basically I started hunting because my grandfather, uh, he owned he still owns 106 acres in uh, that area I was mentioning before. And he, he hunted, he deer hunted, he had like a small beef cattle farm and then he hunted deer and he always hunted quite a bit and he loved to hunt, but he only deer hunted with a gun, which at that time it was a shotgun. And uh, he, he kind of got me into it. Uh, No one else in my family, my father, no one else in my family hunted. They, it was never really, but for some reason, you know, I, I kind of think back to like the wired to hunt podcast when you talk to Donnie Vincent about how he says that everybody's kind of wired don't to hunt and everybody has something deep down that, you know, makes them a, a hunter and some people just choose to participate and some people choose not to. Right. And I just feel like it was, for me, it was just, it was inevitable that I was going to be a hunter and going to be big into it. You know, I just, right. my mother always laughs and says like, when I was little, I never knew anything about hunting because it wasn't really around, I wasn't around it much. And he, she would, she would always say, whenever she asked me what I wanted to wear, I, everything was always camouflage. And she's like, I don't even know where you figured that out. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, it's one of those things. But so I started hunting, and you know, I the big thing, and I think the way to explain kind of New York State hunting is. I remember a guy telling me when I was young, I was probably 12 years old, 13 years old, you know, really kind of getting some interest in hunting at that time. You couldn't gun hunt until you were 16. Um, but I uh, remember the guy saying to me, well, you only get one shot at a buck a year. And you know, what did I know any better? I was like, Oh, okay. You know? So basically what that kind of encompasses is basically people in New York, you know, back in the day, especially, if they saw a buck, they shot it, you know, like no matter what, basically, um, it's funny because my grandfather, um, he's a really laid back guy, you know, and he just, he got to a point when he, when I, I remember it, I was a teenager or young, you know, maybe middle school age where he said, I'm not going to shoot every buck I see now. I'm going to just shoot, I'm going to shoot a six point or bigger, you know? And that was like maybe the first time I ever, heard anybody say that they would let a deer go and he actually got like you know ribbed by his buddies because he was telling them that he kind of passed up a couple bucks you know a year because at that time he was retired he hunted every single day of the season and uh i just remember thinking that and you know i didn't really give a lot of thought to it but so basically i started hunting myself when i was 16 um and at that time, I was lucky there was the, the deer population in New York was really high. Um, the buck to doe ratio was always kind of out of whack. 
um, just because so many year and a half old bucks get shot. But um, there was a ton of deer, ton of does, and like you'd go hunting anytime and you'd see, you know, 25 deer. And uh, so I shot, you know, the first few deer I shot, there was some does uh, and a small buck within my first two seasons probably. And uh, I started hunting with my friends a little bit, and that was where I really got into like the other side of it, which was like doing deer drives and stuff. So I, you know, my grandpa never did a deer drive. We basically, he was a tree stand hunter and yeah. he didn't really or ground blind. He had no interest in, you know, pushing deer, but I, you know, I did a few deer drives for like maybe the first three, four years of my hunting career. And I just, I kind of realized like towards the end, it's fun. You get to hang out with your buddies and, you know, you see some deer, but we never once, I never saw a big buck and I don't think we ever killed a buck period. We killed a few does with the deer guys and we were always pushing deer, but it just wasn't effective. And, um, I just felt like it wasn't really hunting, you know, and yeah. You know, I'm not saying anything's wrong with deer drives, you know, just personally, it's not my thing. Like, you know, whatever, I'm not, you know, I try not to be, tell other people what they should or shouldn't do. It's just to me, I just didn't care much for it. So I kind of stepped away from that. And I, I kind of basically said to myself, well, I have a piece of property that I'm, you know, my love's lucky enough. My grandfather left me and my sister, the, the property, and he's still alive, but he's signed it over to us. And, he, uh, he said, or I said to myself, you know, it's, I have this piece of property and it's decent. Like there's deer there and, you know, it's, there's some fields. It's, it's probably 70% timber and the rest is fields. And, uh, I'm like, I need to, I want to try to make this, you know, a, a good spot to hunt. So I, I've always kind of had this mindset of things where, you know, I don't, I don't want to accept something if it isn't the way I want it to be. So I'm going to try to change it to make it better. And I was lucky with the timing of, you know, my age and everything when I was getting into hunting is when a lot of this land management stuff really started to come out. And there was a lot of information, you know, available to me for that. And I just started doing as much research as I can. And, you know, to probably to, anybody could say that the, um, the first thing I started was a food plot. So basically it was tough to get my grandfather to be on board with that because he did hay and, you know, he was a farmer. So he, everything, he wanted to use everything, you know, and get something out of it. So like I planted clover or something in this field one year, I finally convinced him to do it. And then he wouldn't let me mow it until he was ready to bail it up. And I was like, well, I, you know, that's not, you're kind of not getting that. Like, that's not the point. I want to mow it and keep it short so the deer will constantly eat it. So eventually he got out of the hang business and then I kind of had full reign. And I, I was really lucky because not only did I have this property that I just had full, you know, access to do whatever the heck I wanted, but he was also, you know, comparatively speaking to most 87 year old men, he's, he's pretty laid back and, uh, he's has, we had all the farming equipment, plows, discs, you know, drags, right. everything, track. We have, we have four tractors. Like I have everything at my fingertips to kind of make things like that happen. And he, you know, I was definitely like the, 
the laughing stock of the town after a while or the area because everybody didn't understand what the heck I was doing. Like, why is he up there cutting down trees and leaving them? Or why is he up there, you know, planting? Why is he spending all his money on seed and fertilizer and stuff and just leaving it? And, you know, it's kind of hard for people that don't understand it to, to see why you're doing it. And my grandpa, he was right there with everybody else, but he didn't care that I did it. He was happy. Like he, I think he missed working the fields and stuff. So he was right there with me until he physically couldn't anymore. To, you know, he was like my farmhand. He'd be calling me during the week cause I don't live on the farm. So right. he'd be calling me during the week saying, what do you, uh, what do you need me to do? You need me to plow up this field or you need me to do this or do that. So, you know, it started with food plots. And, um, we, I, you know, I didn't really notice a huge difference. Um, you know, I never really saw deer in those fields during the daylight very often until yeah. we started planting food plots. Like it was always, I always hunted in the woods. So yeah. after the food plots started and then eventually went into more things where I had created some cover and things like that, I started to see some huge, huge changes. And really a big thing that happened to me that was kind of a, a nice feather in my cap for what I was doing was my grandpa, when he was hunting, I think it was probably 2012 or 2013. He, he said, I've never seen the deer hunting this good. And he said, I know it's because of everything you've been doing. Yeah. And it was funny for me. I mean, he, he's owned that land since he was 27. So for 60 years, you know, he's owned that land. So he, 60 years of hunting too. So he's been able to see the best hunting he's ever seen in the last, you know, 10 since I've been kind of changing things. So I, right. I take a lot of pride in that. So when you planted on this piece of property, when you planted that very first food plot, how big was that food plot? And did it, was it like a light switch or was it more of a trickle as far as deer coming to it? Um, so the very first food plot, it, it's in what I call now, like my main food plots, a three acre field. Okay. Um, it's, it's all hidden by woods. There's a hedgerow that covers it. So no one can see it from the road. Um, and I would say it was a, it was a slow trickle for that one. Uh, two reasons. Uh, the first reason is, like I said, my grandpa let it grow like through the summer, it grew really high. And then, you know, I don't, when we mowed it, I don't know how much came back to the point where the deer were really eating it. But so the first year maybe have been kind of a wash, but the, you know, and I also, the other thing is I didn't run a lot of cameras back then. So right. it was maybe hard for me to really determine uh, what, what was actually happening. But, and then thirdly, I had, I had the thing where I was only hunting really in the woods. So, I, you know, yeah. There very well could have been deer going there in the daylight, and I may not have never even known it. So, but it once I kind of transitioned away from uh, that was like a clover mix that I planted, and then once I got out of that, I started doing corn and soybeans, um, and that's when that was almost like a light switch at that point. So that was gotcha. maybe like seven years ago, something like that, six years ago. So now you have this 106 acres, right? And you, mm-hmm. you were, um, you know, 
you started off with a three acre food plot and then you slowly progressed um, and started adding multiple food plots. Did that, is that farm now less egg and all kind of a, a hunting sanctuary now? Or is there still it, corn it beans that you guys harvest? No, there's, uh, we don't harvest anything. It's just, it's all, uh, totally, it's totally for hunting. Um, there's one field on there that is, that we leave as hay, uh, because the neighbor, uh, the neighbor and I traded because there's a, our property adds up to 106 acres, but there's actually a strip of like 16, 17 acres that splits the two. So it's yep. like a real narrow, maybe hundred, eight hundred yard wide strip. And the neighbor owns that he never goes on it he's not a hunter we've always had access you know basically exclusive access to hunt it but there's a little pasture in there so basically what i did was i asked him if i could plant a food plot there and then he uh i would let him hay the field it's like a three acre field so i was asking for like an acre and a half and he was giving him three acres to the person that bow hunts my hundred and Six, you know, if you add in that other, it's like 120 acres or whatever. I'm the only person that bow hunts that, and that's it's pretty unheard of in our area um, that there isn't five or six guys on 100 acres or more. Um, so it's and there's only two people that gun hunt it. One other guy comes and hunts with me for five days of the gun season, and that's it. Um, so. I wanted them to be on the deer to be, you know, have to bed and feed basically on mine as much as possible. Obviously you're never going to keep them there all the time, but I wanted them there as much as possible because they could easily go, you know, anytime during gun season, if they go across the property line, like they're probably in trouble. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the thing, you know, with this type of a, an area where there's, I think it's, I looked at the chart. I want to say it's like 11, 11 to 12 bow hunters per square mile or something like that. Or I don't know if it's bow hunters, but hunters, like it's a lot. So, um, it's tough to, it's tough to not have deer survive. So, you know, I think the step one of getting some deer with any kind of age on them is to get them, get your property, your property needs to have everything that they want. So, and, you know, I've had deer that I thought pretty much stayed on mine, and then I've had deer that wandered like crazy. So, you know, right. it's, they got a mind of their own, but you try to do the best you can to give them what they need. Okay. Um, so, so specifically, what did you do to your, to your property? Was it hinge cutting? Was it, uh, you know, planting some grasses? Was it, uh, you know, opening up? Uh, just removing some of the mature trees so more sunlight hit the the ground what was it specifically that you did um a little bit of everything uh, minus the grasses i haven't gotten into that i i wish i could but i just don't have the right kind of area to do that but um we've i've done probably five five or six acres of hinge cutting over the years um and that's helped a lot um, it helps to concentrate the deer. And also, um, one thing I did last year, which was kind of neat was I did sort of like a travel corridor with hinge cutting. So kind of like, almost like a funnel basically. Gotcha. Um, and that, it worked really well. I didn't kill a deer out of it, but I had 
lots of pictures of all different types of deer walking right down that trail. It was kind of neat to see that. Um, and nice. another thing we did that was huge was uh, we had a logger come in and he just called the wood. So he took out everything that was not very good or was uh, shading out a better tree. Um, he took out basically firewood. So it, right. we didn't make any money off of it hardly, but it was, you know, the habitat uh, improvement was huge. Um, probably that's probably in, you know, like I said, I've been paying close attention to this for just shy of maybe 10 years. Um, and I want to say that was probably five, six years ago. Okay. We had that done and probably that's what the biggest, um, thing that I've done that has like, like a really big change. Like one after, like a year after that happened, I was just like, wow, this is so much better because, and I just noticed deer were living there, staying there on their own. And, you know, a big thing I think in our area is once gun season starts, deer don't move on their own very often in the daylight um, because they get pushed so often. Um, so one of the biggest, one of the best things for me is to be able to sit through an entire gun season. I think 2013, uh, we had a pretty high deer numbers. I had a lot of does living on my land and I had, um, uh, one of the best gun seasons I've ever had because I, I literally went out and hunted and every time I hunted, I saw deer and they were moving on their own. Nobody was pushing them. Nobody was doing deer drives in the neighboring properties. They were on my property, bedding, getting up, walking to food or whatever. And it was like, it was just so like I killed three does, I think with a rifle that year. And that was beside the point though. It was just, it had nothing to do with me actually killing a deer. It was just the fact that I was watching deer, you know, moving on their own during a time when in the past they would just be shacked up wherever they could hide and, you know, hoping nobody was going to come kick them in the butt, you know? Right. So, at that time when you when you did the you know the interior timber work and you had the food plots do you feel that the 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 land improvement the habitat improvement carried more weight than the planning of the food plots or do you think um it was kind of in conjunction with one another that made your the overall the property overall better I don't know. Um, I think that if you talk to or read from any, you know, good land management person, you know, like examples like, you know, Jeff Sturgis is someone I would read a lot about. Um, Neil Doherty, I've met Neil a few times. He's fantastic. And they'll all say that, you know, the chainsaw is the best tool that a habitat manager has, you know, has nothing to do with food plots. So, I think that's the first thing that comes to my mind is absolutely the timber was the best thing I ever did. You know, change, you know, hinge cutting and having the timber selectively harvested. Um, but I don't know that for sure. If you really dig down because I've had the food plots first. Um, I think they both hold a lot of water, but you know, like I said, you got the best food plot ever. And if the closest cover is a mile away, then, you know, they're only going to feed there at one o'clock in the morning. You know, they're not going right. to be there in the daylight. So I think that you, that the cover probably was better than the food plots. You know, I think that, um, the food that plots was a are visible result, sure. result, right? That was a visible result Absolutely. where you, you did the work 
the next year you're like, oh my God, it it it's really paying its dues. Yeah. And that was the year that my grandfather like made that statement like okay. this is the best hunting that I've seen, you know, in sixty years. And that was two thousand thirteen, so, you said? I think that was two thousand thirteen if I'm correct. I think okay. that's gotta be it. All right. So Huge thing, you know, a big thing happened. Um, all the work that you did kind of paid off. Um, did that kind of light a fire under you and was like, okay, now what can I do to do more to my property? Yeah, um, it did. I, I mean, I would say the fire was there too, you know, right. but it, I think that, you know, and the other thing too is, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to my one friend. I met this guy in college. Um, and it's funny because we were going to college in the city of Buffalo and we were both being in orientation and I'm wearing like a deer hunting hat and he's wearing maybe a deer hunting t-shirt and we're like, Hey, like we're the only two people in the orientation and he's like, Hey, you hunt? And I'm like, yeah. So we got to talking and it turns out that he is actually from the same County that I'm from and we'd never met. So, uh, since then we've become very good friends and we kind of helped each other through living in the city through college. And, uh, but he has a, a big, big farm. His father owns like, you know, 600 acres or something, which around here is really big right. and uh big uh, dairy farm. And, and he was a big hunter and he had all these great food plots and he has all this knowledge just from his family because of how good, you know, they're farmers. So they're good at planting everything. And uh, he just has a really good property for deer hunting and, after going hunting with him and see on his land and kind of seeing what he did, it really you know, sparked a huge interest in that for me. And it made me realize, you know, this guy's 20, 25 minutes down the road from my farm and he's, he's got like a paradise here. So I just want to make mine into that, you know, as best I can. It's a, it's a, you know, a fifth of the size, but at least it, you know, I can do the best I can with it. So, and I really feel like I have, um, you know, I, and I'm to the point now where I spent a lot of time hunting on other friends' properties and, you know, going around with my buddies and that was, hunting was a lot about that for me when I was younger, but now it's really just about my own property. And I, like, I love going and spending time with my friends and hunting, but I could care less about shooting a deer on anybody else's property. Um, I just have no interest in it. And I have other places that I can hunt that would maybe be better, you know, than mine, but that's not my goal. My goal is not to kill a deer, you know, or a big deer. My goal is to make my property the best it could be, you know, so that maybe someday I'll get a big deer off of there. You know, like right. I, I'd pass up opportunities to go hunt somewhere else to try to learn more about mine to make it better. Right. So now, so, so you've implemented these changes, you've planned the food plots, you started seeing results. Um, did that translate into you accomplishing your goals as a hunter, as far as harvesting deer was concerned? Yeah. Um, to an extent. I, um, so I always remember this one article I read by Charlie Alzheimer and it's called like the five steps of hunting progression or something like that. I probably didn't get it right, but something like that. And he basically tells you like there's five steps. First step is you need to kill a deer and figure out how to make that happen. And then the second step is, you know, kill lots of deer and try to fill all your tags. And then it's maybe the trophy stage where you want to get the biggest deer you can. 
and then it's maybe more about the land and then you know more about uh hunting as a as a group or hunting as a as a whole uh would be the last step maybe and i i kind of feel like i you know i've i don't know the exact number but i've killed a bunch of deer probably 40 deer or something in my life you know i'm 32 so i'm you know 16 17 years i've been hunting whatever um and a lot of them have been does i've shot some nice bucks um but i don't really care much about shooting a deer anymore i really more i'm about you know the land and helping other people learning how to you know be better at hunting and helping making their land better in our area um so i think that i've progressed a lot as that with that and i think that i might i kind of like fast forwarded through maybe those last three steps um you know, I have killed nice bucks on my property. Um, most of the deer that I have killed have been on my property. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I'm, I'm happy. I, I've never, um, I'm hardly ever disappointed with a season, you know, like to give you a quick example this year, um, a lot of people probably would say if they had the season that I had this year, that say that they had a bad season. Um, so I killed one deer with a, I killed a doe with a rifle. Um, I had, uh, I, I like skimmed the doe with my bow and that was, you know, I like hit real high and just took some hair off the top of her back. And that was, uh, you know, obviously not a great thing. I wasn't real happy about that. And then, uh, I had this buck, real nice buck, one of the better bucks that I've hunted on my land. Uh, and I hunted him and I actually really felt, like I was hunting this deer because he was visible in daylight. I saw him, had one good encounter with him, uh, tons of trail camera pictures, tons of daylight pictures. And I was just always in the wrong spot at the wrong time. Like an example, like I didn't hunt no October 29th. I hunted a morning and it got up to like 70 degrees that day. And I just said, I'm not going, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to skip the afternoon and not put my son out there. And then a week later, when I checked that camera uh, by the stand where I would have hunted because it was the south wind, I, uh, he walked right by at four o'clock in the afternoon, broad daylight, you know, like 15 yards from that stand. So, you know, it was just like a handful of situations like that. Um, and then I mentioned before that I have one other guy that hunts with me during gun. He's been hunting my land since before I was born. He's uh, been hunting there since he was 15. He's 50 years old. And, uh, he, he came out, he hunted the first three days and he shot that buck on the day before Thanksgiving. So like on his third day, I was hunting with him. I was, you know, out in a different stand and the deer just came to him first. And, uh, it was a little disappointing, obviously in the beginning, like I, cause that it was the deer I wanted to kill, like mm-hmm. without a doubt. And, uh, a good deer. He was an eight point probably. I, I sent a picture to you, um, yep. Uh, the, the guy with the orange, he's wearing the orange jacket. This just shows the rack. That's the box. And, you know, maybe a, in the high 120, something like that. Not, pretty nice eight point, especially for our, he was like 19 inches wide. So right. it was, it would have been a real, pretty much my biggest buck, I think, or close to it. And, uh, you know, I felt like I had a shot at that deer and I didn't get him. But, you know, I, I was disappointed in the beginning and, you know, my grandfather was kind of funny. He, he was really disappointed because he sees how much work I put into it and whatever. But I, I look at it like now it's like, you know what? 
I'm the only thing wrong with that situation is I didn't pull the trigger. Like I, you know, I did everything to this land. I, you know, I, I attracted that deer to this land and he lived there. He lived here. He survived through, you know, first week of guns or through two days of gun season. And he survived all through bow season, which is not easy you know, for a deer, especially one that moves in daylight like that. And, uh, you know, the only thing different, the only thing wrong with that for me, from my standpoint, is I didn't pull the trigger. So everything was right. And, I, you know, I did everything except pull the trigger. So who cares about pulling the trigger? You know, it's just, right. it is what it is. And in the future, I'll be, you know, come by me instead. So a different one. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of what I mean. Like, I just, I don't care that much anymore about shooting a lot of deer or shooting, like, as long as I'm, I'm happy with how things go and how the deer are reacting, you know, like, right. I think, I think my season this year, I ended passing 10 different bucks. Um, and I, in New York, that doesn't happen a lot to a lot of different hunters. And, and I think I always, whenever I end a season and I, I always add up the number of bucks that I pass. And the biggest reason is because like I told you in the beginning about that guy that told me yeah. that you only get one shot at a buck a year. So right. I, you know, I always laugh to myself about that. So there's got to be a reason you passed these deer, right? Um, did mm-hmm. you pass them because they were too young? Did you pass them because you they weren't big enough in the rack? Um, why did you pass all those bucks? Um, this this year specifically, they were all a year and a half old bucks. Okay, um, and my in my area, uh, with, you know, the class of deer that we have, I kind of am looking at like maybe the, I try to hunt the top 10% of the buck in my, Is that in based my off age class. And yeah, based off their okay. age. Um, and you know, a mixture of age and size, but the, and most of the time, unfortunately that adds up to a three and a half year old buck. Yeah. Um, so the, I'm basically always hunting three and a half year old bucks. Some years I've actually had where, you know, it was like, there's only one three and a half year old buck. So, you know, you got to add in a two and a half there once in a while too. Um, because otherwise you're not, you're talking about like the top 1% of bucks if there's only one. So I, I'm looking at, you know, I probably only have, I'm hunting maybe three or four deer a year if I'm lucky, you know, some years it's less. Um, and this year they were all year and a half old bucks. Um, they ranged from like a spike to a small eight point. Um, in the past, last year I passed up, I don't remember the number exactly. It was in that neighborhood of 10. Um, and there was two, two and a half year olds. One of them was a really nice two and a half year old. I I would say 90% of the people that I know would have probably shot that deer. Um, but I just, I didn't even think about it. I don't know. It's just funny. I, passing a deer for me is almost like a, anymore. It's a thing that just happens. I don't really have yeah. to talk myself into it or out of it. I just don't even stand up. I don't even grab the bow. I just watch. Right. And, uh, so it's funny. I kind of, that deer kind of walked away last year and I kind of thought, man, I'm surprised I didn't shoot that deer, <laughs> but you know, I knew he was two and a half. And at the time I just didn't feel like shooting him. So, right. All right. So uh, we do, we do all these things kind of 
for a reason. And then I want to trans after you answer this question, I want to transition to the QDMA part of it, but we do all these things for, for one reason or another, whether it's because you love to manage land or, you know, by, by passing these bucks, there's a, a small part of you that I'm assuming here wants to kill, um, a mature big buck, right? I mean, not necessarily mm-hmm. like North America whitetail cover, but big for your area as far as antlers. There's, there's a little part of it, I think, in all of us that gets us, you know, that we kind of have those that wish or that dream every year that a big one will walk by our stand. But I guess when it comes to deer, you said you're you're trying to hunt the ten, the top ten percent. Um, but is there is there a cap or a plateau on that? Because you passed 10 year and a half year olds this year. Um, you decided not to shoot. Is that because you're managing, you know, to someday have a four year old or older on your property? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, um, I have, there's no way that I would know how many of those deer are still alive. Um, So it's tough to tell, but I mean, when I pass a deer, you know, one of the things you may not hear this in Iowa, but in, in New York, one of the things you always hear people say is, well, if I don't shoot them, then somebody else is going to shoot them. Right. And that's partially true, but they're certainly going to live at least a few more days. Like you never know. There's a lot right. better chance if you, if you don't shoot them. So, um, I kind of have to go with that. And then I, you know, I would obviously love to be able to hunt four year olds. And I, you know, I only know a few people in our, in New York that actually say, I'm only going to shoot a four-year-old and they probably only shoot a buck every four or five years, which I'm not too much off of that, but, and I'm saying three and a half year olds, but I think that, um, there's one, I killed one four-year-old, uh, way before I even started any of this. And that was just, you know, luck. Um, and then I had another buck that I was hunting during, and it was, I don't know, five years ago or something. That was for sure a four-year-old, uh, and someone else on a different property killed him with a rifle. Um, so, I, I mean, that those are the only two that I know of, you know, in my 15, 16 years of hunting that that existed, you know, around me. Right. And you know, I'm sure there was more, but it's just they don't come around very often. Um, right. So, I, I mean, obviously. I'm to answer your question. I, I don't really think that in my mind that it's going to be that way, but it may, you know, and right. they're, I don't know. They talk about, there's a, there's actually a bill right now in New York that's talking about adding in antler restrictions to, uh, to our area to try to help build up the population of bucks. And, you know, I don't really know how I feel about that. I, you know, personally, it doesn't really affect me too much because I kind of put antler restrictions that are, probably more harsh than the ones that they have in, in their plan, but I'm myself, but I, uh, I don't know, you know, I know that's going to make a lot of people mad. I, I, you know, as I said, we were right on the border. Pennsylvania has antler restrictions. I think they've been doing it for 11 years. And, uh, so I kind of saw how that went because I knew a lot of people from PA and people were really not happy about it. I think it worked. Um, uh, and I probably will get attacked for this by some people because there's, it's a big, big deal, but, and a lot of people still are really mad about it, but you know, I think it's worked from what I can see. You know, right. I know people that have been hunting there for a long time and 
shoot bigger deer now. You know, I, I don't know how right. you can. Well, I guess it just it all comes down that. to what you're what you want. If you want to shoot the first deer that walks by every year because you want the meat off of it, that's great. But if you shoot mm-hmm. a small buck and bitch that there are no small bucks, you're instantly a hypocrite. And hypocrites solve zero problems, right? So you are your yeah. own worst enemy yeah. in a situation like this. So I, I for one, am for antler restrictions um, for, for the pure fact that there sounds to me like there's plenty of does in your area that can that can be shot in place of a spike or fork horn buck. Yeah. Um, so I haven't, I haven't shot a year and a half old buck in a long time. Yeah. Um, and I've never had an empty freezer and I haven't shot a mature buck every year, you know, since right. I started passing bucks. So, right. you know, I always have deer in the freezer and they're always, you know, does. So, or, or a big buck if I'm lucky, you know, but right. it's, uh, that's the way I see it. Um, there is some people that, um, like I know people that just go out three, four times a year during gun season and they, they literally will not buy their license if there's any restrictions, you know, and I don't know what to say to those people because I'm not that guy. So I don't know what to, you know, I don't relate to it really. I guess I, I mean, I understand and I feel bad because they should have the ability to hunt, but they do, you know, they just choose not to. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many times I've killed a buck and, you know, and on the same day <laughs> passed up a few other ones, you know what I mean? Yeah, like for sure. just because, just because you see a, a four point doesn't mean that's the only buck you're going to see. Like, you know, there's probably another one coming down the trail too. So just, you know, I've learned a lot from starting to pass deer. Yeah, for sure. Um, so where does the, the quality deer management association come into play? Okay. So, um, New York state is, uh, growing QDMA a lot. Um, there's a guy, uh, Mike Edwards, he is the, uh, regional director for New York state, uh, for QDMA. He just got hired. He's from Rochester, New York area. And he just got hired, I think three years ago. Um, and he's just been building up. I think there's, and I don't know the exact number, but I want to say there's at least 12 branches in New York state. Um, and most of them have been, most of them have been, uh, started in the last like three or four years. So he's done a really good job with that. And he, we were friends on Facebook basically. And he basically reached out to me and said, like, I, you know, it seems like you're really big into this stuff. You know, are you, have you ever thought about starting a branch? And first I was like, nah, you know, I'm too busy. And then base, uh, I started going to some, I was all, I've been a member of QDMA for maybe 10 years, which basically I'm meaning I'm a member of the national organization. So if you're a member of the QDMA, you're just a member of the national organization. The, the local branches are really just an entity of themselves and they just basically help get to spread the message and they hold events and stuff. So I went to some events in Rochester, which from where I live is maybe an hour away and, and they were awesome. It was um, basically a seminar uh, given by Neil Doherty, which he's a great guy. He's got a lot of good information. Um, and then there was some field days where he was involved and Eric Long was involved. They brought him in. So they basically, you have a field day someone offers up their property. You go out to their property they bring in this expert 
like Eric Long or Neil or, uh, you know, we had some local foresters, things like that. And they walk through the property with you. They tell you what's good, what's bad, you know, what they change, you know, what they keep the same. Uh, everything from food plots to hinge cutting to land management of any kind to forestry, um, all that kind of stuff. And I just, it was just like the best thing ever. Like, I just loved it. I couldn't, it was awesome that this was happening. It was close to home. I was learning a bunch of stuff. You're meeting new people that are involved in the same sort of thing that are kind of in your area. Um, and it really sparked an interest in me. And, you know, this friend that I was mentioning before that went to college together and stuff, he's big into it too. He's also been a member. So we got to talking and we basically said, you know, let's try to start a branch in our County. Um, so we did, um, two years ago, two summers ago, we started, um, we've had a, a bunch of successful events every year. We've had an event uh, or two, and we've had some banquets where we raise money, um, just to hold these other type of events. So, um, we've had field days, we've had seminars. Um, we also are, we raised a bunch of money at our banquet, which was just a few weeks ago. We're giving, um, a national sports, uh, a county sportsman's federation. We're giving them money to buy uh, young uh, New York State hunters lifetime hunting licenses. So we're donating enough money, I think, for two or three um, lifetime hunting licenses for youth. Uh, we're talking about the potential of giving scholarships with the money that we raise to students that are graduating that are trying to go into conservation. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that people, it's the funniest thing to me is how difficult it has been to, for me to get people to come to events. Right. Um, I, I don't understand, you know, why. And I think the biggest thing is, is they think when they hear QDMA, they think that all we're doing is trying to, you know, <laughs> we're basically trying to say you should do antler restrictions and you should only shoot big bucks and you should only you know do this or that. And it, like, if you come to one of our events, like, we hardly talk about bucks. Like we just talk about the land. We talk about, you know, food plots. We talk about, you know, we talk about stories and tell stories about bucks, but we're never, you know, shoving anything down your throat about what you need to do. We're just giving you, you know, here's an example of what we did and here's how it worked or here's how it didn't work. And, you know, we're not pushing that way. And most branches, I can't speak for all of them, but most branches of the QDMA, they're not pushing specific things like that they're just trying to give people education you know the biggest thing is just education and trying to give people better ways to make their land better to hunt better to do make better decisions um from anything planting trees cutting trees food plots you know shooting the right number of does all that kind of stuff i mean the nice thing is is if you follow all of those other things that a result is, you know, usually larger, older bucks. Right. Um, but it's not the main focus of what we do. And, um, like I said, I can't speak for everybody, but I know in New York state, most of the branches feel that way. And I know the regional director feels that way. So you're not going to come to an event, you know, in New York and get, you know, blasted about antler restrictions or this or that. I mean, believe me, I'm sure there's going to be some heated discussions about it because it's kind of, coming down the pipe for us, but, um, you know, we're never going to 
support or you know try to push anything that we don't really truly believe in and isn't isn't good for just hunting and deer but you know for the culture of hunting too you know i think it's important that's important too right so so you know before we started uh recording you talked about that you know after you started this branch you're starting to see positive things happen because you started this branch in your county what are some of those positive things that um you have seen i guess maybe happening on a larger scale in your county but at the same time have you seen since you uh started that branch that qdma branch have you seen any positive things happen on your 106 acres um I think that uh, regardless of QDMA, you know, I think that hunting in, in our entire country is getting better. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that more, less year and a half old bucks get killed every year in the whole country. Um, and I think that I, I'd like to think that QDMA has a lot to do with that. Um, and I, I think that we are getting the point across to people about, um, about just land management. And I know that there's people that have come to my, to our events that have like, we just had our, like I said, I think it was February 27th. We had our um, banquet and I was talking with guys who I've talked to for two or three years in a row now, a bunch of different events um, that, and they're, they're loving it. And they're literally saying to me, like, I've learned a lot and it's, you know, I've seen it, it's starting to work. And, um, just seeing how excited people are after being in our events is worth it to me, you know? And, and I think we're, we're young in our area in order to like say for sure that what we're doing is really changing, you know, the habitat or changing the hunting around there. Um, but I think we're getting a start and I, you know, every year at every event, we have a few more people that show up and new people. And I've never seen anybody leave being like, these guys are a bunch of idiots, you know, like, you know, nobody's ever leaving saying, you know, I'm never coming back here again, you know? So right. that's, that's good. That's what I'm, that's my goal. You know, it's not a, a quick thing that's going to happen, but you know, maybe in, you know, 10 years or something, I'll be able to say that everything was a lot better in our County because of our branch, you know, and I, I really hope that that's possible. Um, I think that, but I do think QDMA has a lot to do with, you know, nationally things getting better with deer hunting. And I, I think that, um, because of people, you know, like brand, you know, people like the QDMA, people like you, people like Mark Kenyon, I think that people are becoming better hunters. They're better informed. And I think they're making better decisions regardless of what those decisions are or what they, you know, right. Right. I think that that's a really, really helping and i think that in the past people that have um maybe not made bad decisions but made different decisions because of lack of you know information available you know we we didn't have this media that we have available to us now right right so well i tell you what man that's about an hour and uh i really appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast and um uh, you know, chat about how Q- QDMA has worked for not only, you know, the QD uh, quality deer management principles has worked for you and your property, but you know, how the QDMA, um, you know, might be able to benefit it, you know, a County or 
you know, so if you do have uh, any questions about QDMA and what they stand for and what they do, I, I, I suggest you go and uh, check that out. But Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate being here. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to an end of today's podcast. Huge shout out to Nick for coming on the show, uh, talking about all his deer management uh, activities that he's doing um, and how he started that uh, QDMA uh, gang. And uh, I think that's kind of cool. And I think uh, if we group together as hunters, whether it's by joining a QDMA co-op or doing something else, um, we can, you know, we can beat the antis and we can have a louder voice uh, in support of the hunters. So huge shout out to all of you guys for taking time to download this podcast. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Huge shout out to the partners of this podcast, Exodus, Deer Lab, Ripcord, Without those guys, um, I would get a lot more ass from the wife. And uh, other than that, be sure to check me out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you want to be a guest on the podcast, whether it's a hunter profile um, or a BS session or one thing that I'm looking for a lot between now and the start of the next season is product reviews. So bows, arrows, broadheads, tree stands, camo, gear, boots, um, accessories, anything that you use, whether you like it or you don't like it, I want to hear what you have to say about the products that we as hunters uh, use on a yearly basis. So, uh, And just remember, it's kind of funny, after this last uh, – product review podcast I got a lot of emails in and I just want to say that um, opinions are like assholes everybody has one whether you agree or disagree that's beside the point Um, if you don't like what the other person had to say maybe you should come on the podcast and uh, review some products as well so other than that I hope everybody has a good rest of the week. Thank you very much for tuning in, as always. And uh, if you're going to be up in a tree, man, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.